We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome, dear listener. This is episode 105 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 19th of July, 2017, and a little bit different today. Um, I'm flying solo. Um, I thought I'd give it a crack. I tried it uh, a long time ago when technology wasn't working for me and I was forced to do it and it wasn't very successful, but um, we've got a lot to cover and I wanted to really get some ideas across and... Any self-respecting podcaster, I figure, should be able to pull off a podcast on their own. So I'm going to give it a crack and see how we go. So, dear listener, starting off with uh, assisted dying, and as we've discussed before, the Victorian government, the Andrews government, is looking at this very closely and seem to be the most likely ones to put forward um, new legislation to allow it. And you'd be thinking if you were Victorian, fantastic, it'll all be over. But that is just not the case. Things are not so simple in our Christian world here in Australia. So first problem that I want to alert you to is uh, from an article in the Catholic News. St Vincent's Health Australia, Victoria's biggest palliative care provider, says it will ban its hospitals, healthcare centres and clinicians from performing assisted suicides if they are legalised, according to a report in The Australian. So uh, this comes from the Chief Executive Toby Hall. He accused the government of taking the cheaper option to give someone a drug to kill them rather than sufficient palliative care. Um, So yeah, this group, they own four hospitals in Melbourne, including the publicly funded St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne, which has 880 beds, employs 5,000 staff, last year treated 54,000 inpatients. The gall of these people, they're happy to accept taxpayer money, money from society, yet when society decides about certain conventions and rules and things we've agreed to, they're not happy, they just boycott and say, no, we're not partaking in that decision. In fact, we're just disagreeing with you and bug you. It's such a selfish, arrogant... To You know, if you're purely privately funded, OK, do what you like in that respect. But if you're taking government money... There's an obligation there to abide by society's rules. And I, for one, say if groups like that, um, uh, this Catholic hospital group, decide they're not going to provide these services, if they're not going to provide the full range of services that are legal in Australia or in that state, then we should just withdraw funding for them. We should not be providing them with anything and... If we need to, let's take over the hospital, if that's what we have to do. We just can't have groups like this deciding for themselves um, on on matters that society's made a decision. So 
the gall of these people. So there you go. You, you might think just getting it passed through the Andrews government is one thing. Now, some people would say, oh, well, if you can't go to you know that particular hospital, you can go to a hospital down the road. But the experience in Canada uh, where a similar – where an exemption is actually granted to religious hospitals um, – it's not that simple. Depending on people's circumstances, they might already be in a hospital in that one and then they deteriorate and therefore have to be transferred out of that hospital in order to take advantage of assisted suicide in another hospital. And that's not always easy. And there's been some terrible cases of people in appalling pain um, struggling to get out of Catholic hospitals to one where they can avail themselves of assisted dying. And there's also been cases where the hospitals in Canada, the Catholic ones, make it extremely difficult for um, people to get access in the wards and and for patients to explain to their relatives and friends that they want to get out and to, and to have an assisted death. And there have been cases where people have actually had to masquerade as florists in order to get um, health professionals in, to get forms signed, to get people out of Catholic hospitals so that they can uh, have an assisted death. So it's a real problem that's going to come up and that's hurdle, you know, number one, assuming that the Andrews government actually passes the legislation. The other hurdle is, uh, from another article I've got here, Possible intervention by the federal government. So, dear listener, those of you who are old enough might recall that in uh, the Northern Territory in 1995, they passed legislation which allowed assisted dying in the Northern Territory. And uh, Kevin Andrews at that time introduced a private member's bill which was passed in the federal government, which overrode that, basically cancelled the assisted dying legislation in the Northern Territory. So the way our constitution works, the federal parliament has the ability to override any territory law. In relation to um, state laws, a little bit of constitutional law here, 101, dear listener, when the, uh, the colonies decided we needed a federation, what they did was when drawing up the constitution, they said we will allow the new federal government to have uh, all of these powers, which they listed specifically, and they said, basically, if it's not in the list, then it's a power retained by the state government. Uh, Canada actually did the opposite. They, um, they said that the states retain a list of powers and all the rest go to the federal government. But anyway, so, um, <coughs> so anyway, can the federal government, under the constitution... Uh, reverse an Andrews government decision to allow assisted dying? And the answer, according to this article which I've linked to, which is written by George Williams, Dean of Law at the University of New South Wales, dear listener is most probably they can on a couple of different fronts. They've got power. So under the Constitution, federal government has authority over the provision of medical services so assisted dying would probably come in under that, section 5123A. And 
there's also an external affairs power in the Constitution where um, uh, the federal government could legislate um, because it signed conventions, one being the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which then gives it power to legislate locally on things like that. So short answer is federal government could actually most likely overturn the Andrews government law if it is in past, if in fact it's passed by the Andrews government. Whether they do that is another matter and the federal government would be pretty brave to do that. Um, one of the more famous instances of the federal government overturning state government was the Franklin River in Tasmania back in 1983. But it's a pretty rare event, I think. So so there you go, assisted dying. Um, you know, not only have you got to battle all of the religious nutters to get an actual bill in Parliament, get it passed, but then you've got to actually get hospitals to provide the service and then you've got to worry about whether the federal government will overturn the Andrews government decision. It's, it's not easy. All right, um, last week, episode 104 is going to be one of my favourites where I was speaking with um, Alison and Julia from the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools. I thought it was really informative. Hope you do too. That's more of the sort of thing I'd like to do in future. Coincidentally, in the last week, a little bit of media regarding the situation in New South Wales. And there was an article in the Daily Telegraph where um, uh, basically 18 schools, the parents at 18 schools, have approached the Parents and Citizens Federation trying to get them to adopt a policy um, to say what kids can do while scripture is being taught. Remember, dear listener, what happens is the, uh, the children in scripture classes are being taught the Bible and the other kids cannot learn productive stuff. They've got to do things like colouring in or they can't be advantaged in any way. They can't learn proper schoolwork. So some of them end up picking up rubbish and stuff like that. Anyway... What they're trying to do in New South Wales is get the Parents and Citizens Federation to put pressure on the government to at least allow, you know, some sort of proper activity to be happening for the kids who aren't in scripture class and to be learning um, the proper stuff or, you know, useful stuff. So... Good luck to them there in getting that through. Uh, one of the activists referred to in the article is uh, Ms Truen, and she's actually a practising Catholic, but she withdrew her kids from scripture class because of the fire and brimstone that they spruik in those classes. And many traditional Catholics in particular would be quite shocked at the Bible bashing that goes on in these classes. So, um, asked why the government was persisting with scripture classes, the Education Minister Rob Stokes, this is in New South Wales, said, in summary, we've been doing it since 1848 and there's a long-standing policy and that's good enough for me, I'm not going to change anything. So, that was his response to why is it still continuing. 
Oh, they've got a long way to go. Let's, in summary, we've got what we referred to last week in that people who are genuinely religious don't want these classes because of the nature of the Bible-bashing creationism that's, that's actually taught in them because the people who are evangelical enough to go in and provide volunteers and do this sort of things are on the hard-right, crazy, nutter spectrum of religious people. So that's who's doing these classes. Um, the children aboard who aren't in the class... Uh, that lady, um, or one of the ladies in the article, um, talking about the primary ethics alternative, said she'd like to offer that, but she doesn't have time to actually run that in a in a school. I mean, she's got to make a living. And this is the problem with primary ethics in New South Wales. It muddies the water. It makes it legitimate for volunteers to come in a school and... There's no way the secular community can can compete with the evangelical community. So uh, that's not a solution that's working. Um, so the government, not changing, New South Wales government, been doing it since 1848. What about the Labor opposition? Good news. The left faction of the Labor opposition, they want to change it. They've put forward um, uh, as part, you know, for it to become part of Labor policy that Scripture be abandoned. Problem is, the Internal Education Committee in the Labor opposition says, no, we're going to keep it. The opposition leader says, no, we're going to keep it. And the opposition shadow education minister says, no, Scripture's going to change. So, dear listener... If you're in New South Wales and you want to change, you've got nowhere to go. The Liberals aren't going to change it. The Labor's not going to change it. You're just going to have to vote Greens or Sex Party or Secular Party or something like that. And, you know, you think to yourself, how can this be? How? It, surely the majority of people can see the sense in getting rid of this. We're not a Christian nation who will want... Bible, your average Australian is not sitting down reading the Bible at night, marvelling at its contents. How is it that we've got this situation? Dear listener, you've got to look at the players involved here. Minister for Education, Rob Stokes, uh, this is the one who said we've been doing it since 1848. He's got a diploma of Bible studies at Ministry Training College in Oxford Falls. That's not a good sign. The Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, she seems like a moderate to me. So it seems to me that when she got elected, uh, it was through a deal with the right wing and she got the top job. And the right wing, as we'll examine soon, is controlled or has a heavy religious um, influence and from their point of view if you can't get the Premier's job for one of your men um, then the education job is the next most important thing to an evangelical Christian so they got that so that's on the Labor side uh, sorry on the, on, the, uh, on the government side in New South Wales let's look at the Labor opposition um, opposition leader Luke Foley a committed Christian, 
And I think in Wikipedia where I saw this, he said his mother instilled in him three things. One, the Labor Party. Number two, the Catholic Church. And number three, Eastern Suburbs Rugby League Club. Who among... Okay, fourth, let's get to the fourth one as well. Shadow Education Minister Jihad Dib, former principal of Punchbowl High. He left in 2014. Punchbowl High is the one we've talked about previously, which earlier this year was revealed as refusing to participate in anti-radicalisation uh, programs that were being um, proposed for the school because that was a school in Lakemba, I think, where it's uh, it's basically a Muslim school and they were refusing to accept these anti-radicalisation programs. And so the Shadow Education Minister is a former principal of Punchbowl. Three of those four players um, are really on the far more religious than your average Australian, you'd have to say. I mean, does your average Australian have a diploma of Bible studies, is a former principal of an extremely religious Muslim high school, or lists as the second most important thing in his life the Catholic Church? These don't represent the average uh, normal Australian. Um, and just to round it off, dear listener, with what I'm familiar with here in Queensland, we've got uh, the education um, minister. Uh, she is just your normal, average, everyday person in that sense. In fact, her parents kept her out of scripture classes when she went to high school in um, in our state education system. That's Kate Jones. But the opposition education um spokesperson in Queensland is Tim Mander, former NRL referee, but more importantly, former CEO of Scripture Union. Again, not normal people to have. What's going on here that we've got such religious people in charge of our politics? The answer, dear listener, is a concerted effort by religious groups to get power in this country. And they are branch stacking the parties. They're tapping people on the shoulder and they're saying to people, go, get in, get pre-selected and work your way up. And it's all happening under our noses and that's why we're faced with such poor choices. That's why New South Wales is faced with such a poor choice on this issue. John Howard started all this in the 80s and 90s. I mean, back then, you had um, liberals who were true liberals. You had people like Fred Cheney, Peter Baum, Ian McPhee, Chris Public. I mean, these were people who had genuinely liberal views on, on social issues, but they were run out of the party by the conservative element promoted by John Howard. Um, so let's just look at, at some of the 
the branch stacking that's going on. We on this podcast have previously referred to Western Australia, where this was happening a lot, and uh, and Victoria. And here's another article um, from Jane Norman, ABC News. Um, Liberals in Victoria claim the party's religious right is stacking branches with Mormons and Catholic groups in a drive to pre-select more conservative candidates. Uh, The Victorian model, introduced in 2008, allows party members of two years standing to vote in lower house pre-selections. So this Victorian system is more open and democratic but it's encouraging rampant branch stacking. So uh, while the Liberals pride themselves on being a broad church, the ABC has been told the recruits are often motivated by single issues like same-sex marriage or euthanasia. Um, State Victorian uh, Executive Member Marcus Bastian says the party's been targeting business groups, young professionals and different cultural groups as well as religious organisations. So um, uh, what we've got is Victoria getting branch stacking happening with religious groups moving in and a Tea Party-like takeover is gradually working its way over the uh, Liberal Party and a similar thing is happening in... Uh, New South Wales. So over there they're having a discussion about, at the moment, the executive has significant say in the pre-selection of candidates. And there's big arguments where there's a movement to to make it purely based on on the branch member's decision. And that's something that uh, Tony Abbott is pushing for. So, you know, if, if Tony Abbott's pushing for it, that's, that's a good, you know, <laughs> you, you can probably immediately be suspicious as to the bona fides of the plan. But he, of course, ex-monk, would love to see more religious conservative voices. And, you know, in New South Wales, the actual executive is nowhere near as conservative as as the branch members are and they're just fighting a battle to keep as many nutters out of pre-selection as they can before they get overrun. And I think they're, um, they're facing a losing battle. So, you know... That's what's happening in, you know, we've mentioned in Western Australia. You can see it happening in in Victoria. Big battle on in New South Wales over this pre-selection methods. Um, and I hadn't noticed anything in Queensland until this article in the Brisbane Times where the Liberal National Party in Queensland just had its convention the past weekend. And... A couple of crazy ideas were put forward at the convention um, and some not so crazy to, uh, to become policy of the Liberal National Party in the state uh, sphere. Um, one of them was um, uh, to suspend immigration from Islamic nations and another one called for headscarves to be banned for girls under 10 years of age. 
Um, in relation to that foreign policy one, here's where alarm bells just went off because the, um, the resolution on foreign policy to suspend immigration from Islamic nations was put forward by Delegate David Van Gend. Long-time listeners will be aware of that name. Um, way back in episode 67, uh, we were dealing with the abortion issue at that time and a uh, friend of the program, Deep Throat, went to a sort of a church meeting and David Van Gend was there. Uh, he he's, uh, was, of course, um, very much against abortion, uh, very much a right-to-life person, very much of that sort of evangelical right-wing nutter category. Uh, he, he wrote a book, uh, Stealing from a Child, The Injustice of Marriage Equality, which is the Lyle Shelton sort of argument that... Oh, it's terrible the idea of a same-sex marriage because one, you know, a child will either miss out on a mummy or a daddy. So, um, so he's in my mind uh, a character to be very wary of in this sort of thing because he will be wanting to impose his conservative agenda, and here he is. He's popped up as a delegate at the Liberal National Party convention on the weekend. So all of those things happening in the other states, I would strongly suspect actually happening um, behind the scenes here in Queensland as well. Oh, dear listener, more on that and where that leads to in a moment. But I thought to break up that and to give you a catch your breath... A little bit of just craziness, um, crazy Christian stories or, or other stories. First up, those of you involved in the Catholic Church would know that part of the ceremony is that the priest um, gets out some wafers and some wine and uh, according to Catholic doctrine, he converts those into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, transubstantiation. And it's not meant to be metaphorical, it's meant to be real, it's in fact infused with the spirit of Jesus, it's his body and his blood. And you eat the, yeah, you eat Jesus Christ and you drink his blood and it's, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But, it, I mean, I did it for years. <laughs> and at the time, you're all, you know, you're in there and you don't really recognise it. And, you know, of course, you're 13 or 12 or whatever, and so you're not really in a position to think too hard about these things. You've been indoctrinated. But anyway, you know, at, at a Catholic Mass, that's what will happen. People will be there and the priest will convert mere wafers and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ and they all line up and um, and pop it in your mouth. So uh, reason for mentioning that is, again, from the Catholic News, um, there's been a directive from uh, the Vatican to priests around the world 
advising them uh, in relation to the wafers to be used. And dear listener, every restaurant you go to these days has a gluten-free option on the menu. And unfortunately, the Catholic Church has no such option, it seems, because the missive from the Vatican is that the bread that is used must contain a quantity of gluten, uh, otherwise it's just not on. So, you know, they've, they've given a very carefully drafted letter to, and you can actually read the letter, there's a link on the website to the article, which has a link to the letter, and you can actually read the, the seriousness in which it is taken that um, before any priest is going to convert uh, wafer and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, just to make sure it's got some gluten in it, it's, uh, is in effect what it's saying. So there you go, if you're gluten intolerant, be careful uh, in a Catholic church. In the UK, sharp rise in exorcisms. It's a boom industry in the UK, partly driven by immigrant communities and Pentecostal churches, according to a report from a Christian think tank uh, called Theos. The Theos report does not reject the possibility of demonic possession, but says there is a need for serious caution. One danger was Christian over-spiritualising, a tendency to ascribe anything and everything to spiritual causes when other medical ones may exist. Um, another was a possible overlap between demonic possession and mental health issues. So we've got uh, Theos, part of a Christian think tank, saying, guys, hold on here, a lot of this stuff is actual just mental health issues and stop stop exercising demons and just check out the mental health possibilities, please, is kind of what the report's saying. Uh, the, report, the report says, one of the frustrations of medical professionals with Christians comes from accounts and anecdotes of people with medical health issues going off their medication because they've been told that prayer is enough and relapsing as a result. I mean, this is happening in a civilised country like the UK. I wonder what's happening here in Australia. Wouldn't be surprised. Oh, over to India now. An Indian court has granted permission for the followers of a long-dead spiritual guru to preserve his body in a freezer. Um, Ashutosh Maharaj, the founder of the sect Divya Yoti Jagriti Sansthan, also known as Divine Light Awakening Mission, he died of a suspected heart attack in January 2014, but his followers insist he is only meditating deeply and will one day return to life. And so they've kept his body in a commercial freezer at his vast ashram in Punjab. And there's a judgment by the High Court. Ends a three-year dispute between the Guru's disciples and the Guru's uh, son, who was hoping to cremate the body in line with Hindu rituals. Um, 
A spokesman for the group says um, about the guru, he is not dead. Medical science does not understand things like yogic science. We will wait and watch. We are confident that he will come back. (sighs) And just before starting the podcast, something flashed across my Facebook and it was uh, headline ABC News. Nearly 550 members of a German boys' choir were physically and in some cases sexually abused over several decades, a new report has found. Lawyer Ulrich Weber put together the independent report, a total of 547 former pupils had been victims of physical and or sexual violence, and of those, 67 suffered sexual abuse. And crazy me, when I had just looked at the story, and I, my immediate thought was, oh, I wonder what denomination that was. And I, then I thought to myself, you idiot. It's going to be Catholics for sure. And, of course, uh, reading on, um, it was a choir that was part of the Catholic Church. Interestingly... Among those singled out for criticism in the report was the former choir master, George Ratzinger, who was the eldest brother of the former Pope Benedict. There you go. All that, of course, from a group who insist that they are providing a valuable service to our community in terms of moral guidance and... um, and that us secularists are quick to abandon the Judeo-Christian tradition that's done so much for this great country of ours. And yet we have stories like that just every other day. Okay, so um, what we had earlier on, before I diverged on crazy, crazy religious stories, was... Trying to just outline, dear listener, the genuine takeover of our political parties by the religious groups. And we really are facing a Tea Party-like takeover. What, what, the, what the Tea Party did to the Republican Party is happening as we speak to the Liberal Party in Australia. We've, we've just seen enough examples of it to to know that's the case. And you can just see by the type of people who are either education ministers or opposition education ministers, you know, shadow education ministers, as as to what's happening. These are not normal, everyday Australian values that these people are holding. Um, So um, what I wanted to do was just a quick... um, yeah, I should have done this as maybe as part of episode 100, as part of our anniversary of where we'd got to on this podcast. But a quick rehash of some key concepts and, and why I'm just so rabid about this stuff. But surely for our society to flourish, we must cooperate. The membership of this society has to cooperate. Diversity is great. It encourages fresh ideas. But squabbling and fighting are are clearly counterproductive for a flourishing society and religions are just creating unnecessary tension and conflict. They're creating in-groups and out-groups 
for no benefit. So that would be okay if they just stuck to themselves. So, all right, if you want to be against marriage equality, abortions, assisted dying, drug legalisation, it would all be fine if they just took the view, well, they're against marriage equality, so they're, you know, a Christian man is not going to marry another man. But they insist on imposing these beliefs on the rest of us. This is where the issue is. Um, so what's the best way of imposing their views on the rest of us? It's taking over political parties. And, and what's happening is they're finding a real home in the right wing of, of the Liberal Party in particular. And you might say to yourself, well, why, is it that, why is it that this sort of movement is going for the right wing of the Liberal Party. And basically the answer is they're just following the American template here. So um, uh, this, this American evangelical movement, they're, they're believers in a thing called dominionism. And that is that Christians must take dominion over society and seize control. Uh, and that only Christians are worthy of of running our government. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but at least on the education issue alone that I just outlined before, you can bear with me that there might be some smoke here where I'm calling fire based on the characters that were described there. So bear with me. With this dominionism... Two parts to it. One is very conservative values in terms of the issues we've talked about a lot, marriage equality, abortion, assisted dying, blah, blah, blah. The other part about them is that they're really into an economic neoliberalism. So small government, small tax uh, is is a big part of, of that agenda and... That's why they fit in well with, say, the right wing of the Liberal Party because that's a shared value. Um, but when you think about it, in terms of Christianity and economic neoliberalism, there shouldn't be any uh, similarities between the two. I mean, these people... Every second breath is about their relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you, you know, for the moment, let's just accept that Jesus actually was a true historical figure. <laughs> I won't accept he was the son of God for a moment. But I'm, you know, I'm strongly questioning whether he even existed as a historical figure. But anyway, putting all that aside, Jesus Christ. I mean, blessed are the meek and the, and the poor, you know, that sort of... Um, you know, going into the temple and throwing out the money changes. The whole story of Jesus was about, you know, if Jesus Christ was alive today, he would be a member of the left wing of the Labor Party. I mean, can anyone deny that? Yet, yet these people who claim to be Jesus' followers are ha happily ensconced in the right wing of conservative politics. 
And the excuse they use uh, as part of this dominionism is that, you know, Christians have to take dominion over society and seize control. Well, you can only do that if you've got money. I mean, money is control. So it's okay to, to make money because that is a tool that you use to gain control. And the other part of that is this sort of prosperity gospel that they preach um, where they say that wealth and worldly success are signs of God's favour. So if you're doing well in this life, big house, big car, lots of money, that's a sign of God's favour. So don't be ashamed of it and that's all good. Keep earning as much money as you like. So that's how they get around the uh, what you would normally think of as Christian values to include this sort of neoliberalism concept. So, so they've found a home in the right wing, and that's where that sort of group diverge with traditional churches. Um, so, and that's why um, that's why Donald Trump could get support from these evangelical groups in the USA. I mean, ordinarily there is nothing in common, you know, the normal story of Jesus Christ and Donald Trump are so far apart, they're at opposite ends of the spectrum, yet the evangelicals supported Trump and that sort of prosperity gospel story allowed them to do that. So, we, dear listener, follow the USA in so many ways culturally, um, uh, fortunately, we avoided the gun problem. And, you know, kudos to John Howard. That is, you know, that and I'm okay with the GST. The, the gun thing, well done. That was a great thing that was achieved. And it was only in the last day or two we had that terrible story in America where an Australian woman uh, called the police, went out in her pyjamas, was talking to the policeman and the policeman uh, in the passenger seat, I think, shot her dead. And who knows why, but it's seemingly no good reason. It's just a society that's out of control. Um, so anyway, we've avoided the gun problem in the USA and we don't have uh, the same race problems that the USA has. Um but we've got to be very careful that we avoid the inequality problem that is a blight on the USA. And where I'm heading to, dear listener, with all this is, you know, you mightn't care about abortion law, uh, marriage equality, assisted dying, drug legalisation. They might be so far down your radar you don't care. But uh, the neoliberalism... Uh, is one that should concern you, unless you're extremely wealthy and um, immune from um, potential economic shocks. You don't want to be a poor person in America or a lower middle class if there's anyone left of that category. It's a dangerous spot to be, and we don't need that sort of um, sort of society becoming uh, the norm here in Australia. So I'm tr- 
what I'm suggesting is not only are these evangelicals importing a conservative agenda on social issues, they're importing a neoliberalism on economic issues, which is just as dangerous. There's lots of reasons to be worried. So just to give you an idea of, um, of where the world's going with things in terms of economics and class and uh, it's, it's a scary picture, uh, dear listener. So a couple of things I always uh, refer to, um, 1960s, a Detroit auto worker uh, was earning the equivalent in today's money of $60,000. Uh, you know, that's a person who hasn't gone to university but is just turning up every day and doing their job. Uh, the equivalent today in the USA is a Walmart worker who, for the same hours, is lucky to get, in today's money, $20,000 and they have no health care. That's a full-time job. When when they send financial planners into Walmart to talk to the employees to give them advice, they assume that these people all have a second job because it's impossible to live without a second job. So many people in America have two or three jobs to keep going. When you're only paid $7.50 an hour, that's what happens. So, uh, you know... The American dream of of working hard, getting ahead and being successful is actually a myth. That That's called social mobility, the ability of people to move upwards through the social scales from lower to middle and from middle to high. In America now, it's got some of the worst social mobility amongst developed countries. That's That's what economic neoliberalism has resulted in. We can't fall into that same trap. And uh, I came across um, this little audio clip from Yanis Fourifakis, who was teaching economics in Australia and ended up being the finance minister in Greece during all their um, turbulent times, and he's a really captivating speaker. So I'm going to play a bit of a clip from Yanis now. Well, the technological revolution that uh, is taking place uh, is uh, threatening us with uh, a unique phenomenon. So far, every time we had technological innovations... Uh, they destroyed many jobs, but they created more jobs than they destroyed. This is the Schubertarian process, uh, which uh, overall had net winners, uh, even though there were many losers. Now there is the first uh, juncture since the 18th century when it is highly likely that technological innovation is going to destroy a lot more uh, positions for wages labor than it will create. Uh, which uh, I think puts us uh, on a course of a major dilemma. There will be a juncture, and we'll have to choose, and we'll have to choose politically and democratically, uh, between a world in which the concentration of ownership over the newfangled means of production is going to 
lead to a stagnating capitalism with intense inequality and a huge quantity of income for a decreasing, shrinking percentage of the population that leaves behind barriers, fences, electrified fences in policed privately policed communities, and the rest uh, in a cesspool of volatility, uncertainty, and social misery. Let me put it in science fiction terms. Um, This is a parable that I think is quite instructive, and I use it often. Um, There's no doubt we're moving towards a science fiction world that will become non-fiction. But, remember, science fiction has two possibilities. One is a Star Trek society, where we are all equals, and we all benefit from the technology. We don't have to work. There's a hole in the wall. You go to it. You, you get anything you want from it. Nobody has exp- been exploited. Nobody has worked for it. The machines do it for you. So the machinery, the technology, is humanity's servant. And then we can sit around and explore the universe. We can have philosophical discussions about the meaning of life, which is wonderful, right? The, in the, the, that is a good scenario. But then there's the matrix, too, where the artifacts that we have created enslave us. And then we become caught up in an illusion of freedom rather than the real thing. Whether we go to a Star, Star Trek or to a matrix-like outcome as a result of technological innovation is the result of politics. And if it's not democratic, it will be a matrix-like world. Dear listener, if the evangelicals get... Not only are they importing conservative social values... They're importing neoliberalism, and their ideal is the Matrix, not the Star Trek, I can assure you. So that, that's the long term. Do you want a Star Trek or a Matrix-type world? And in the short term, one of the comparisons could be, you know, do you want a USA situation or do you want a Canada-like situation? I mean... The two countries side by side on the same continent, yet remarkably different in in lifestyles. And I've got a link here to an article titled Why Canada is Able to Do Things Better. And it's from a Canadian who describes here uh, our annual family trips to my grandparents' Florida condo in the 70s and 80s offered glimpses of a better life. Uh, In those days, Canadians saw themselves as Americans' poor cousins. Uh, Everything was just big and beautiful and bold in America. But the article says that decades later, uh, a different impression has emerged, and it's the decay of America. So uh, this writer, who is Jonathan Kay, says... You know, there hasn't been a new major airport constructed in the United States since 1995. Friends of mine who were there recently in California just were shocked by the state of of the roads and the highway system. You can just tell it's dilapidated and falling apart because money isn't spent on it. Um, The uh, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, recently said about the USA, we are unable to build bridges, we're unable to build airports, our inner city school kids are not graduating. Um, 
it's almost embarrassing being an American citizen. And uh, there's all sorts of reasons why, but the basic answer is that the American public sector just doesn't have the money required to pay for the stuff it needs to do. Taxes are too low. So the OECD ranks its members by overall tax burden. The United States comes in at fourth to last. Tax burden, 25.9%, substantially less than the OECD average, 342 So as a comparison between the USA and Canada, the writer says it's quite simple. When Canadian governments need more money, they raise taxes. Canadians are not thrilled when this happened, but as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. put it, taxes are the price paid for civilised society. Uh, among the American right, by contrast, the conversation about taxes often seems infused with magical thinking. Specifically, it is imagined that even severe and abruptly implemented tax cuts will serve to actually increase government revenue. This is this whole su- supply-side theory. It doesn't work. It's been debunked. So a nice article because uh, it makes the point that, that life in Canada, for him, he pays 10% more tax than the US, but uh, they've got universal health care, there's world-class public schools, there's a social safety net, there's infrastructure. Like, these are things worth paying for. And, dear listener, my point is the evangelicals, they're not just screwing over our education system. They're, they're going to start on our welfare system. Um, not so long ago, it was uh, earlier in July, uh, the Daily Telegraph, part of the Murdoch stable of papers, put out a future shock front page which uh, was meant to be life 100 days after the election of a shortened Labor government. So um, it was sort of a fake uh, front page pretending to be 100 years down the track under a Labor front government and sort of stating what was happening in the world. And it was doing it on the basis of these are terrible things that we're we're now happening, you know, woe was us for having a shortened Labor government. But, but these are the things they listed. So included on the list of alleged indicators of looming ALP dystopia was the fact that big businesses wouldn't get a tax cut under Labor, penalty rate cuts for workers would be overturned, the top marginal rate for personal tax would be higher, schools would get more money, we would be more ambitious on renewable energy... Banks would be subject to a Royal Commission and same-sex marriage would be legalised. So the Daily Telegraph was putting that forward as all bad things. As probably most readers would have said good when looking at it. So it's just an example of how the Murdoch press is out of touch with what's really needed here. And still on this, we've got um, an article from Ross Giddens, uh, in the Brisbane Times, July 8th. He's a very well-known economist. And um, he's quoting Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the US Federal Reserve, 
who gave a speech titled When Growth is Not Enough. And so this is a former chairman of the Federal Reserve. In that speech, the first thing he mentions or says as a worrying trend is stagnant stagnant earnings for the median worker. Talking about the US here. Since 1979, real output per person in the USA has expanded by a cumulative 80%. And yet during that time, median weekly earnings of full-time, empl- full-time workers have grown by only 7% in real terms. And almost all that growth is explained by higher wages and working hours for women. For male workers, real medium Weekly earnings have actually declined since 1979. Um, I mentioned earlier about the ability to move through the social classes. Well, that's declined in America. And again, from this uh, Ben Bernanke speech, 90% of Americans born in the 1940s would eventually earn more than their parents did. But only 50% of those born in the 1980s would end up earning more than their parents. So it used to be the norm overwhelmingly. Nine out of ten would end up earning more than their parents. Now down to 50. 50-50. A couple of other things he mentioned as worrying trends in the US. Increasing social dysfunction and... uh, political alienation, distrust of institutions, etc. So there's that. And just to show you how crazy things have got in America, we've got, um, we've got a situation in Texas. Uh, an eccentric feature of Texas gun laws is that people entering the state capitol, so that's the, the parliament house, can skip the long lines of tourists waiting to pass through metal detectors if they show guards a licence-to-carry permit. So, licence-to-carry a gun permit. So, in other words, the people most likely to bring weapons into the building aren't scanned at all. So, if you just show that you've got a licence-to-carry a gun... They don't scan you. Oh, you're licensed to carry a gun. In you go. You can have a gun. That's fine. If you don't have a license to carry a gun, then you get scanned. Some lobbyists and reporters have also obtained gun licenses just to skirt the lines. I recently got one myself, says, says the writer. I mean, just to show when people. You know, when Tea Party Republicans get control of power, which is what's happening here in Australia, things like abortion law goes backwards. In May 2011, Governor Perry, who was gearing up for his first presidential race, signed a bill requiring all women seeking an abortion to have a sonogram at least 24 hours before the procedure. Carol Alvarado, a Democratic state representative from Houston, pointed out on the House floor that for a woman who is eight to ten weeks pregnant, such a law would would necessitate a transvaginal sonogram. She then displayed the required instrument to the discomforted lawmakers. 
which is a white plastic wand resembling an elongated pistol which would be inserted into the woman's vagina. Government intrusion at its best, she observed. Nonetheless, the bill passed. Um, And uh, state senator declared, this is a great day for Texas. This is a great day for women's health. Between 2010 and 2014, the proportion of women who died in childbirth in Texas doubled from 18.6 per 100,000 live births to 35.8, the worst in the nation and higher than the rate in many developing countries. These figures represented 600 dead women. That's what happens when conservative forces get control of a parliament. Um... Oh, just to lighten things up while I get ready for the next topic, uh, here's, here's, a, here's a word from a, a conservative voice here in Australia, Landon Hardbottom. Cheryl, where's the girl who helps me with this? I'm trying to leave a message for that fist fellow and that velvet glove person. What, what do you mean she's on lunch? She needs lunch? Goodness me. I have to pay sick leave, I have to pay for annual leave. This is why we need corporate tax breaks in Australia. <laughs> Thank you, Landon. By the way, you can leave, anyone can leave a voicemail message. There's a link on the website. I, it's the highlight of my day if I see a little email telling me that there's a voicemail message. I mean, you don't have to put on uh, you know, a fake accent or anything, just any sort of uh, comment, question, query, you know, whatever. Um, love to hear from you. So uh, do that, please, and make my day. Um, also, um, positive review on iTunes would be nice. So there's directions how to do that on the website. Um, if you can't be a patron of the show, then you could at least um, do that. And if you are on, as most of you or many of you are, where you're on um, Facebook pages where they're discussing the latest secular dramas in Australia, if we've done a podcast on the particular issue in question, um, maybe just in the comment section say, um, you know, Iron Fist Velvet Glove dealt with this in episode 71 or whatever it was. You know, if you can get our name out there, that would be nice. Anyway, back to where I was. Um, so, so that's big problems coming from the right wing. Um, and the answer, or the next question is, well, what is the left doing in the world in response to this? And there's an article here um, which I really... Uh, very thought-provoking, is basically saying or suggesting that it's in, Amer- in America's case, it's almost too late. And, you know, dear listener, this is an Australian podcast, and I know I'm rabbiting on about America, but I'm doing it because we follow them in so many ways, and the influences from them are, are here, as I hope I've sort of indicated. So I sort of show these as as possible future scenarios for us and we've just got to make sure that we head for the Star Trek version and not the Matrix version um, is, is where we've got to go to here. Think of it that way. So 
at the risk of being even more US-centric in this particular episode, let's have a look at this particular article which says... Um, so I'm talking about here, you know, what what's the left doing, what can it do? And this article is titled, On Rural America, Understanding Isn't the Problem. Uh, in the aftermath of the election of Donald Trump, a common theme was that Democrats failed to understand white working class flyover America. And by flyover, they mean um, people never actually travel by road through these states. They just fly over from... There's just nothing to see there. Flyover states. They're the poor, traditionally Republican states. Um, in the... Um, yeah. So what this character, uh, or this person is saying in this article, is um, uh, that... I'm trying to say he or she, but it's not quite clear to me if it's he or she. Bear with me for a second. Let's see if I can see a name here. I can't even see a name in the article, so my apologies. I'm just going to assume a she and see what happens. Um, She grew up in rural Christian white America in a flyover state. And um, actually, I know it's a guy because he speaks later on about dating girls. So it's a guy. Um. He says, the real problem isn't East Coast elites not understanding or caring about rural America. The real problem is rural America doesn't understand the causes of their own situation and fears and they have no interest in finding out. They don't want to know why they feel the way they do or why they are struggling because they don't want to admit it is in large part because of the choices they've made and horrible things they've allowed themselves to believe. Sometimes when I think of these, dear listener, with this sort of rural America flyover states, I kind of think of Pauline Hanson supporters to a large extent just sort of come to mind as the classic equivalent in our Australian scenario. Anyway, he goes on. I grew up in rural Christian white America, The problem isn't that I don't understand these people. The problem is they don't understand themselves. Uh, White America, in white America, the Christian God is king, figuratively and literally. Systems built on a fundamentalist framework are not conducive for introspection, questioning, learning or change. Uh, He says here, I've had hundreds of discussions with rural white Americans and whenever I present them any information that will contradict their entrenched beliefs, no matter how sound, how unquestionable, how obvious, they will not ever entertain the possibility it might be true. Their refusal is a result of the nature of their fundamentalist belief system and the fact I'm the enemy because I'm an educated liberal. At some point during the discussion, that's your education, Tolkien, will be said derogatorily as a genuine, as a general, a general dismissal of everything I've said. They truly believe this is a legitimate response because to them, education is not to be trusted. Another thing about them is they're very susceptible to propaganda, rural Christians white Americans have let in anti-intellectual, anti-science, bigoted racists 
into their system as experts because they tell them what they want to hear and because they sell themselves as being one of them. The truth is that none of these people gives a rat's ass about rural Christians except how they can exploit them for attention and money. Um, since facts and reality don't matter, nothing you can say to them will alter their beliefs. <coughs> President Obama was born in Kenya, is a secret member of the Muslim Brotherhood who hates white Americans and is going to take away their guns. I mean, they just see that as a fact. And the writer says, do you know what does change the beliefs of fundamentalists sometimes? When something becomes personal. Many a fundamentalist have changed their minds about the LGBTQ community once their loved ones starts coming out of the closet. Many have not, but those who have done so because of their personal experience come in direct conflict with what they believe. I agree with that. I think this uh, it's definitely been apparent here in Australia. I would have thought that when people's sons and daughters and nieces and nephews and grandchildren come out as being gay, then um, hardline Christian views start to wither away and I think the same will happen with voluntary euthanasia if people see enough painful experiences of death it will become personal but uh, there's lots of issues in our society that you just can't make personal you can't reduce to a personal level and the article basically says it's really seems unlikely that there are ways to change the minds of those people. Excuse me. So um, we haven't reached that point yet. We've got a bunch of guys in charge of our education system who are heading us in that direction. Uh, so we've got time and we can do things. What can the left do? What is it doing? What is the left doing in Australia and worldwide? Well, unfortunately, at this very moment, it seems to me that the left is just fucking around with identity politics and ignoring the real issues that are affecting the constituents that they should be looking after. Um, I've been following Ray Halpin, who, made, who left that comment on, that, um, on the Ken and Malik blog. And he writes some interesting things, actually. And he made the point that um, how many times has The Guardian, which is an infamous left-wing newspaper, published a story about working-class difficulties over the past few years only to see it attract virtually no commentary or reaction of any kind whatsoever from a readership that generally can't keep its mouth shut about anything? The silence in itself is proof of the extent and strength of class bigotry on the left, where identity politics completely dominates attitudes and discourse. I think he's dead right. If you were on a Guardian article and were just talking about issues of, <clears throat> of the difficulties for working class people caused by globalisation or or things like that, you'll get virtually no comments, but if you touch on the subject of identity politics, well, it'll be on for young and old. 
the right wing is happy with the identity politics debate because it doesn't cost them anything and it allows virtue signalling and a sort of a painless um, environment. So this is an article from The Chronicle by Walter Michaels, Uh, basically saying that cultural appropriation is a distraction from... Uh, is a distraction from the real menace of inequality. Uh, the students at elite American universities come overwhelmingly from the upper class. The job of the faculty is to help them rise within, or at least not fall out of, that class. And one of the particular responsibilities of the humanities and social science faculty is to help make sure that the students who take our courses come out not just richer than everyone else, but also more virtuous. Identity crimes, both the phantasmatic phantasmatic ones, like culture theft, I think what he means there is just phony, so the phony ones like culture theft and the real ones like racism and sexism, These identity crimes are perfect for this purpose. Since unlike the downward redistribution of wealth, opposing them leaves the class structure intact. Thus, for example, one can completely support the actions of Middlebury College students in demonstrating their opposition to what they call Charles Murray's white nationalism, uh, while at the same time noting that it's not white nationalism that's making poor people poorer, it's capitalism. Um... The problem is not that rich people can't feel poor people's pain. You don't have to be the victim of inequality to want to eliminate inequality. And the problem is not that the story of the poor doesn't belong to the rich. The relevant question about our stories is not whether they reveal someone's privilege, but whether they're true. The problem is that the whole area of cultural identity is incoherent and the dramas of appropriation it makes possible provide an increasingly economically stratified society with a model of social justice that addresses everything except that economic stratification. In other words, the left is just talking identity politics without dealing with poverty, and the right is happy to deal with identity politics because it doesn't cost anything. Our friend, Yasmin Abdul-Majid. She's come in for criticism from all quarters over different things, what she said. But the the thing that she should be most criticised for is her, you know, her obsession with, with identity politics. I mean, complaining that Nigerian women can't tell their story if a white fiction writer from Oregon tells a story, that it somehow steals the story from the Nigerian woman, or people wearing sombreros at a, at a Mexican-themed party or culturally appropriating Mexican culture. It's such a sideshow to the real issues. And, you know, if she was truly concerned about minorities, she should be talking about poverty, inequality, social mobility, 
penalty rates, housing affordability, funding of government schools. That, that's her crime, was bullshitting on about all these other things when real things that are affecting not only her, you know, minority group or constituency, but lots of others, that's where she should have been. That's where she could have helped people, where she had a platform on Q&A and the drum and every other ABC program going. But instead she chose to muck around with all the sideshow issues that, that are all wonderful if you're sitting around a university coffee shop discussing crap, but in the real lives of people makes no difference at all. That, that's her real crime. So the problem with Abdul Majid and... And people like her is they've elevated the notion of cultural identity to such a place that they've conned people into thinking that that's all there is and it's the most important thing in their life and they've conned people into overvaluing it. Um, an article came across my desk titled Islamic Experts Work Towards National Religious School Curriculum to Apply Faith to Modern Australian Life. And lots of people were complaining because it was, you know, the idea of an Islamic faith curriculum being taught in our schools was the sort of issue that most people objected to. But one of the participants in this um, she says here, uh, she said, young Muslims often find themselves questioning their identity because they don't have the answers to questions about their faith that are raised in the news. And she says that in a way as if questioning their identity is a bad thing. But, but I would say, good, uh, there's nothing wrong with questioning your identity. You, you should be doing that if your identity is who you are, what ideas you believe in, what values you hold, then yes, check them regularly. A good idea. It's not a bad thing. Further on, she says, it could make them, meaning young Muslims, question their belonging and negatively impact the way they view their role in society and whether their contribution has value. Again, I would say... Questioning their belonging is a good idea. Are they integrating? Their role in society, yes. Are they having a positive role? Does their contribution have value? She goes on, It meant I could embrace my identity a lot more confidently and confirm that just because I followed the faith, it didn't conflict with being raised Australian. Dear listener, fellow atheist secularists, we just, it's an, it was a topic of religion which, which gets converted into identity and culture and we need to be very aware of those arguments and how they run and in the same sense that we are not afraid to pull people up on crazy religious ideology, we should also pull people up on on crazy notions of identity and culture. Speaking of the left and how it's responding to what's needed for 
the needy members of our society, the minorities, if you like, who are disadvantaged. Great article by Ken and Malik, and uh, I'll read some of it. Um, last week, Sandeep and Rena Mander were denied the chance to adopt a child. This is in the UK. It was not because their local council, Windsor and Maidenhead, thought they would not have provided a loving home, nor because there were no children to adopt. It's rather that the Manders are of Indian Sikh heritage, though both born in Britain, and the only children needing adoption were white. We've got a British council refusing to allow the adoption of a white kid into an Indian Sikh family. The problem runs much deeper, however, than the attitudes of the undiverse members of one local council. It speaks to a broader confusion about the relationship between race and culture, a confusion that afflicts anti-racists as much as it does racists. It is plausible the council imagines that to be white is to belong to a particular culture and that non-whites belong to other cultures. A white child can only be brought up by white parents because otherwise he or she would grow up in the wrong culture. I mean, that would be undoubtedly what the council's thinking. Um, More recently, though, the kind of attitude that seems to have swayed Windsor and Maidenhead Council has been promoted by anti-racists as much as by racists. In Britain, the pushback against transracial adoption began in the 1980s. In 1983, the Association of Black Social Workers and Allied Professions gave evidence to a common select committee looking into adoption. That group condemned transracial adoption as a microcosm of the oppression of black people. They said what a black child requires above all is positive black identity. The black community could not maintain any dignity in this country if black children are taken away from their parents and reared exclusively by another race. Dear Australian listeners, does that sound familiar? That sort of thinking that we can't have black children raised by white people and vice versa, but the first one... It's, it's a perspective, as Malik says, that far from challenging racism, simply appropriates the core of the racial thinking. It, it, it is a racist statement for black communities to say, I, we don't want white people looking after our black kids. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you, you know... Alabama, you know, in the 50s would have said about we don't want white kids raised by black families and would have been considered abhorrent. Just because it's the minority saying it doesn't make it any better. It's, it's a racist statement. People don't get it. What we're finding in the world at the moment, dear listener, is that race, the word race is being substituted with culture. Um, the new language of culture has taken both right-wing and left-wing forms. So the new right that's emerged in the 70s 
explicitly looked to culture as a replacement for race. Um, Every nation and people, its proponents argued, had its own culture that had to be protected against foreigners. So that's your your Pauline Hanson sort of response to immigration because originally she started with Asians and then moved on to Muslims. You know, while there's many good reasons to have issues with immigration, hers seems to be, you know, rather than saying, uh, well, because they're a different race, as in they're yellow or they're black, she will refer to culture or their likes will refer to culture. So, um, you know, if the Ku Klux Klan was to reinvent itself in 2017, um, it would do so by referring to culture rather than race. So that's what the right wing is doing. Um, the left, uh, culture has become a key component of its version of identity politics. So this is Ken and Malik still. Different minority groups, whether African-Americans, Indigenous Australians, Muslims or gays, are seen as possessing distinct cultures, identities and ways of thinking. To confront racism and oppression, many argue, requires a defence of each group's distinct identities, which is a mirror image of the new right argument. On both the right and the left, many now view cultures as fixed, bounded entities, each the property only of certain people. Once culture was seen as providing the tools with which to open up and transform the world, today many regard it more as a protective wall to shield its members and keep out unwanted visitors. So that is what the left and the right are doing with culture. And how does that, you know, translate into current Australian, current affairs in Australia? Well, we've just had a referendum council bring out a final report which was released to Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And the report is called for a separate declaration of recognition of Aboriginal people outside of the constitution. Um, containing inspiring and unifying words, articulating Australia's shared history, heritage and aspirations. Um, What we've got, dear listener, is a call for some sort of body that will represent Aboriginal people, that will be in our parliament, that will be at a minimum consulted on legislation that has anything to do with remotely with Aboriginal people, um, all the way up to potentially having power to veto legislation or or some meaningful power. Who, who knows? Nobody knows where it's going to be, where its powers will start and finish. But it's it's the idea of of a body made up of Aboriginal people representing the Aboriginal community of Australia in our parliament. And, dear listener, that, nobody seems to want to point out, is a racist policy. To to single out a group and give them special privileges 
based on their race, based on their bloodlines, is, is a racist policy. And it doesn't matter that it's a minority who's had a tough time and who have been victims. You, you can't give special privileges to people just based on race. Uh, it's it's fundamental. It, when the white people were putting down black people in Alabama because they were just black, it's agreed. It's disgusting. The same in South Africa when people were prevented from voting and didn't have full rights because they were black, just because they were black. It's dehumanising. It's it's illegitimate. You can't just separate people based on the colour of their skin or their DNA. It doesn't matter whether they're part of the majority who is oppressing the minority or vice versa. You're simply appropriating a racist idea and using it for the minority. So um, just on that constitutional matter, Linda Burney is a Labor MP and she's sort of uh, article here where she's talked about that um, constitutional change, but she's really annoyed that there wasn't talk about removing the race power from the constitution. So... In 1967, we had a referendum and apparently got passed and it gave the Commonwealth power to make laws for the people of any race for whom it is deemed necessary to make special laws. So she's in favour of a body in the parliament that's Aboriginally, made up of Aboriginal people doing things to, for Aboriginal people and at the same time is really angry that a power in the Constitution allowing the federal government power to make laws in relation to race is still there. I don't get it. I don't get it. How can you, one on the one hand, be happy with a racist body, yet on the other hand, want to get rid of legislation that allows racist based legislation. I agree. Let's get rid of that section. We shouldn't be making policy based on race, but I don't see how you can be in favour of the sort of constitutional change that they're going for. So one of the issues with all of that is who are these people who are going to sit in this body? Who, who votes for them? Who decides who they are? Noel Pearson, is he going to be one of them? I mean, there's lots of people in the Aboriginal community who don't like him, who don't think he stands for them. This is the problem. How do you, how do you decide who should be one of the so-called leaders of the Aboriginal community? And the other part of this is how condescending to think that all Aboriginal people think the same way about an issue. 
for that group to function, they must assume that there's near huge majority opinion amongst Aboriginal people on, on certain issues. Well, how can you be sure? It's condescending and racist to think, oh, all those brown people, they all think the same way, you know. With, this is the thing with these community leaders in the UK and, and here with our minority communities where these imams are self-appointed spokespeople for their community and the assumption is that, you know, all the members of the community think the same way. We'd never say that about white people. We would never say, oh, yeah, they all think the same about this particular issue. I mean, God, my small involvement with the secular community, it's, it's hard to get 10 people in the secular party to agree on certain aspects of secularism, you know, like that primary ethics situation in New South Wales, you know, quite big disagreement in the secular party about that. So it's, it's condescending to think that this group could speak on behalf of all Aboriginal people as if they all think the same. So that's a divisive thing. And it's, it's a demonstration, I think, that people have lost the ability to truly look at the nuts and bolts of these ethical decisions and, and go, hang on a minute, that, you, you can't say that on one hand and on the other hand say that. You, know, you can't complain about racism and then want to implement a racist policy. You know, one of the things, I guess legal training as a lawyer, when you, when you look at a law, you, you think about how will that apply in various circumstances and where will the law, where would that not make sense or where does it, you know, is there a situation where that law applied that way is going to be nonsensical? And people don't do that enough. And it's an advantage for people who've had some legal training that they actually can look at laws and go, well, these laws are going to apply equally to the whole society. Uh, is that going to create some crazy um, scenario as, as a result? Because we need to apply these laws equally. So mentioned it before, but there's a writer called Alistair McIntyre and he wrote a book, uh, After Virtue, in which he describes a post-apocalyptic world in which science has been outlawed and fundamental scientific knowledge has been lost. He then describes a revival where people use scientific terms but do not understand the underlying principles. In this revival period, people use expressions such as neutrino, mass, and specific gravity. But there is an element of arbitrariness and even choice, which would be very surprising to us. McIntyre argues that in today's world, the language of morality is in the same state of disorder as the language of science in his imaginary world. In 2017, we use many key expressions to describe morality but we've lost our comprehension of it. Our ideas of right and wrong are a jumbled mess where competing morals fluctuate in importance depending on our random sympathies at any given time. 
At this point, dear listener, I'm going to play you another clip, and I apologise that the audio isn't the greatest, but you might recall when Ayan Hersey Ali was in Australia and there was a bunch of women who produced a video where they really went for her, and it was the sisterhood turning on uh, Hersey Ali in a vitriolic fashion that was... Hard to believe unless you actually saw it. And, and they were proud of themselves. And one of the women involved in that was Hannah Asafiri, who is the operator of the Moroccan Soup Bar in Fitzroy and the winner of various community awards. And they have a thing there called um, Speed Date a Muslim, where you can go in and sit down with a Muslim and ask questions about what it means to be a Muslim. Sounds great. And here she is sort of after one of those sessions talking to the ladies left behind um, about her ideas. So I'll just play some of that. specific to Arab Muslim countries. Well, not just Arab, but to Muslim countries. And in the name of uh, Islam, some of the atrocities committed. That seems to be a theme across most uh, issues, or most tables, the conversation. So I guess I want to speak to that just very briefly. And that is to say, Islam, like Christianity, like Judaism, like Western democracies, like atheism, Buddhism, any ism you can think of, that all these social systems are founded by um, and expressed through male conceptualisation. Yeah? There is nothing faith-based that can legitimate the injustice and the expression of violence um, and and can be justified in accordance with the faith of Islam or any other faith, in my view. So with that, when you seek to understand the atrocities happening in Saudi and some of the infighting and warring, etc., etc., and all the perception of uh, male polygamy, I think one of the questions was, in terms of what's in the Quran and how it's applied and how it is used to justify the violence against individual and or communities, whether it be women or gays or whatever. I guess what I put to you is that any any sentence, any revelation, any sentence, any quote, um, unless it's interpreted in and through a sentiment and an understanding that it was revealed and it's in its social context, then it can be interpreted and justified its opposite of. And an example of that is when um, Gandhi said, "Be the change you want to see in the world." And that was expressed through a sentiment of humanity. Equally so did Hitler. And the expression of that society was one of monstrous violence. Now, in the same way we can interpret any uh, written, quote, expression, revelation, when we seek to interpret uh, or uh, violence against women and justify and find justification for violence inside the ground, then we are, in fact, departing from the very context of the revelation of Islam. I mean, look at us. There is nothing about us that is uh, passive or submissive. We will not be pacified by men. 
by uh, social institutions, by governments, or whatever. We, we believe in upholding a freedom and a sense of social justice for all. Inside that system of belief, we also believe that male uh, institutions, certainly over the last few hundred years, have departed from the very revelation of Islam. Um, so when we interrogate and question and inquire about why social systems across the globe are behaving in such monstrous ways, I put to you that this is consistent with male behaviour across time, that this is nothing to do with Islam and that you give it power by attributing it to a faith that is founded on notions of justice and humanity. Well, that, dear listener, I think this is an example of what Alastair McIntyre was talking about. Ideas of right and wrong are a jumbled mess where competing morals fluctuate in importance depending on our random sympathies at any given time. I've got no doubt she's well-meaning, actually. I just She's just completely wrong. And, um, you know, well, in summary, her argument... Um, uh, it's all uh, a misinterpretation and otherwise it's just the fault of men. Um, actually, on the score of interpretation, I think we've heard that before. What was that? I don't know. It's too busy talking a big nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. Yes, there's been misinterpretations uh, throughout history. J- just, just briefly, I'm getting to the end of it, dear listener. Uh, you know, she's got a big thing about men and the patriarchy and how it's all their fault. And you know, the implication is that just all men have all got it made. And you know, of course, dear listener, this is the thing you such broad brush strokes. I mean. Some men are having a very hard time and some women are having a great time and vice versa. And uh, uh, it's pretty ballsy, the statement she was making, without any qualification. So just I'll provide some qualifications um, from an article that I'll link to. Consider struggles faced particularly by American men. According to research published in the Huffington Post, uh, men receive jail sentences that are 63% higher on average than their female counterparts when committing the same crime. Also, men are significantly more likely to be the victim of violent crime. Men comprise over 90% of workplace fatalities. They are the majority of the homeless and the majority of suicide victims. Men make up over 95% of all combat deaths. Uh, And in this article, a person says, I feel that I must clarify that my bringing attention to these issues faced by American men in no way serves to diminish those issues faced by exclusively American women. Rather, I hope these issues serve to place an inkling of doubt in their minds. Perhaps the structure of American society isn't the one-dimensional hierarchy of privilege that was laid out for them by their college instructors. Uh, Also, women make up the majority of American college students. Um, 
Uh, I'll finish off with this. Can we not consider a vision of justice for society that takes into account the unique situation of the individual? Some black Americans have genuinely been held back by discrimination. Others have not. Some white Americans lead comfortable lives of relative privilege. Others lead lives ravaged by personal hardship. Some women are held back by gender stereotypes and sexual violence. Others aren't. Some men lead comfortable lives. Others face a myriad of socially and biologically cultivated injustices. Postmodernists and social justice warriors will call will view my call for a more nuanced, individualistic approach to rectifying social injustices as the ramblings of a privileged white male who is blinded by the benefits afforded to him by the systems of oppression within society. But it is their twisted view of justice that threatens the freedom of all. To make someone complicit in an oppression based upon the colour of their skin or the shape of their genitals is a greater form of discrimination than they understand. There we go. All right, dear listener, that was a long one, um, but I'm just trying to get across the idea that uh, there are changes happening in our society that we need to be aware of that the Christian element is busily working away in our political system and has been for a long time. It's extremely powerful. It's slowing down not only reforms of, you know, just social justice issues that should have been passed long ago, but it will bring in a very hardline form of neoliberalism as well because of this prosperity gospel and its, and its bolstering of the right wing. So... Think about your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and how are they going to cope if, you know, if the opportunities aren't there. So, you know, right-wing Tony listening to this might accuse me of, of sounding like a rabid socialist. Um, and, you know, really what we've got to aim for is an equality of opportunity not necessarily an equality of outcome. It's okay for people to end up rich and some people end up poor. It's just the way it will work. But people have to have the opportunity to move through the through the system. And if we follow that American system, they won't have the opportunity. The social mobility will be gone and if you're born into a poor class, you'll remain there no matter how hard you work. We've got to avoid that. So... How what we do from here, I don't know. You know. Disaster what's the worst thing what could be worse than a disaster looming would be a disaster looming and we don't even know it. So we're just gonna be aware that it's there. We have to do something. Next week I'm hoping to have a round table with Hugh and um, Hugh Harris from the Rationalists and Michael from the Atheist Foundation and look out for posts on Facebook about that and it will be a live um, broadcast, so if you want to contribute, go onto the YouTube page for the Iron Fist Velvet Club and subscribe, and then you'll be given notices when the video comes up, and 
you can watch us live and you can ask questions or you could um, pose things to us and um, a bit more interactive rather than me just ranting and raving. So there we go, uh, a long-winded solo attempt. Hope you enjoyed that, dear listener, and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye. Well, I'm impressed. You're still here. One hour, 49 minutes and 54 seconds later. (laughs) Presumably you enjoyed it, which is great. If you did enjoy it, send me a message. It'd be great to have a little bit of feedback. You know, I'll probably still just do things the way I want to do them anyway, so if you hated it, too bad. But uh, if you liked it, great, because that will just encourage me more. And again, if you can leave a... Review on iTunes, great. If you could mention us on various Facebook pages where we've said something that might be relevant, that would be great. Leave a voicemail message, love those. If you're really keen, become a Patreon. Go to the website for details about that. That'll show you're serious with a bit of skin in the game. Otherwise, at the very least, just tell your friends and point them in our direction and ask them to give us a go. Alrighty, this is the final goodbye. Cheers. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast so there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty australian to i think ten dollars and various ones in between it's really what do you think it's worth is it worth a cup of coffee uh is it worth more than that less than that whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It's just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.